Hi, this is Justin Locke. Welcome to Chris Smith's podcast. I'm his guest today. We're going to talk about cultural stuff. Stay tuned. It's going to be fun. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast. My name is Chris Smith. We're on episode number 98. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, then this is the perfect moment to actually do so. Go to Stitcher, go to iTunes, subscribe, and you get this every week, every other week, I should say, for free in your inbox or on your device, of course. Today's guest is Justin Locke. Justin spent 18 years playing bass with the Boston Pops and gradually was transformed into an author, playwright and speaker. He has written several books that seem appropriate for this particular podcast. His first book, Real Men Don't Rehearse, gives an inside look into major orchestra culture. His second book, Principles of Applied Stupidity, examines the cultural dogmas of the American educational system, especially the meanings of the words smart and stupid. His third book, Getting in Touch with Your Inner Rich Kid, examines the cultural differences between poor kids and rich kids. Justin has appeared as a co-host of Late Night CBS Radio, and his comedic musical plays are performed all over the world. It's an excellent interview with lots and lots of stories, and I like and I love lots and lots of stories. Let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Good morning, Justin. How are you? It's a good start already. How are you? Hey, you know, when you do enough radio, you learn to, you got to get the audience in quick because they're going to turn the channel any minute. I know, I know, <laughs> so. I know, I know. Okay, so, so just stick around because it's, it, it is only going to get better, um, just like you heard in the introduction as well. Um, Justin Locke, on the other side, um, I have done a li- little bit of research about you, so I know a little bit more about you, but the audience might not know you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, um, where are you now, and what would you consider being your so-called cultural frame of reference? I think with this, oh, you, can fill, you can fill the whole podcast wow. already. My cultural frame of reference is culture shock. I grew up, I'm a cultural anachronism. I uh-huh. grew up on a farm okay. in uh, Ohio, very far, well, about 15 miles outside of Toledo. Uh-huh. Most people aren't that way anymore. Your average millennial grows up in the suburbs. There's not that many farmers, period, anymore. And I had, you know, 50 acres of dirt to myself <laughs> as a kid. And I went to – now, at this point, this is where the story starts, is that was my culture, mm-hmm. was the future farmers of America – Mm-hmm. Uh, riding a bike around in ditches and dirt and clods and soybeans. That was my cultural reference. All right. And then in uh, my mother was really into music, and she was always pushing me into and I started playing the string bass. Uh-huh. And what they don't tell you is people are desperate for string bass players. Okay. And so I ended up going to this fancy music camp up in northern Michigan, which, which was basically a summer camp for rich kids from New York City. 
So that was my first culture shock I experience. Imagine. I can imagine. Oh, oh, it was just uh, astonishing. I played uh, 28 concerts in 56 days. Wow. Uh, and I came home stuck with my hands stuck like this. I'd been playing so much. And then I came back and then I realized the poor kids school that I was going to really wasn't very stimulating. So I dropped out of high school when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And this created a bit of a furor. And I refused to go back. And they said, well, what, if, what about private school? And I said, well, what's that? You know, I think that, that should be my T-shirt. What's that? I, I don't know things. You know, just understanding how ignorant I was. Hashtag they said, what's well, that? Yes. That what's that? I don't question mark. What's that? I don't know. So they dropped me off at the curb, and this now I go from what is absolutely the 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 nastiest across the tracks, you know, public school, mm-hmm. to the rich kid private school. Okay. Uh, where all the millionaires who own Toledo send their kids, uh-huh. and I'm just plopped into this environment. There's no orientation day. There's no training. There's no here's how to go from being a poor kid to a rich kid. They just drop me in there, parachuting in. Okay. And uh, my third book, I'm jumping ahead here. I always said I'm going to write a book about this. This yeah. is kind of how I do therapy, actually, yeah. <laughs> is writing books about things. And I was just fascinated by the cultural differences between the the poor kid school experience and the rich kid school experience, mm-hmm. which was just uh, oh, I don't want to get into hyperbole, but it was extreme. So then, again with the music, I went to Boston. So now I'm out of the Midwest into East Coast, another culture shock experience by itself. Yeah. But then, long story short, I got lucky, I practiced hard, I got the call, and now I'm playing bass in the Boston Pops Okay. at uh, age 20. Yeah. Just very quickly, what what are the Boston Pops? I looked it up, but the audience, might, some might know, some don't know. So what is that? Oh, okay. Uh, well, hopefully, well, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, yeah. uh, you know, is one of the top the mm-hmm. so-called five big orchestra, major orchestras in the world. Yeah. And they live there at Symphony Hall. And they do a season. And then for two months in the spring, yeah. the Boston Pops and some freelancers like me, they change clothes and they play light classical music and they right. set up tables out in the, the, the hallway. And they, oh, they make a ton of money, uh-huh. you know, playing this. And, and pop music will play, you know, you know, top 40 music. Arranged for orchestra. Cool. And in that era, Arthur Fiedler, who was the conductor of it, was the most famous, successful conductor in the world, uh-huh. and still is actually. Uh-huh. And he was the guy that I'm working with at age 20, going. And major orchestra. I, I love this cultural theme. I was so excited to hear from you because, yeah, I mean, for me, uh, major orchestra culture. N- is based in Venice in 1450. That's when it was created. Yeah. And it never changed. So now I'm going back in a time machine to this world where we're dealing with instruments that were built in 1850 and the whole culture and setup and the way everything worked uh, was based on that. So I did that for 18 years. Uh-huh. Then, I, then I get into the jack of all trades. I got into doing video production. I didn't really want to be a bass player. It's, uh, you know, you really are a cog in a machine. And you just conform with everyone else around you. And I just had a little too much personality for that job. So mm-hmm. I just started doing video and everything else. Yep. So uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm, we're recording this audio and also the video. By the way, if you want to watch the video, you can go to culturematters.com slash YouTube. And I'm, I'm seeing your hands move and, and you, you illustrated the machine, the bass that you were playing, which is one of those very big right, things up here. The big up thing, like the, 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 the katung katung machine. Mm-hmm, so you exactly. are, you are a very good bass player. I like to think so. You, I mean, you, you, I mean, you must be. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, and I, I'm putting this an, as an understatement, really. And then in the introduction, um, we could have heard, we we learned that you transformed into an author. 
So how yes. do you how do you do that? You said you have a little bit too much personality for a bass player. So how do you how do you transform into an author? What happened? Uh, I'll skip the the big conclusion. This this was I was just being a bass player and just trying to pay my rent. You know, we called it notes for cash. That was but kind you of could, the, you, you could have you were you could have been or you were world famous. I mean, at the age of twenty plus. Well, I was in a world famous orchestra, yeah. uh, and I was in the Guinness Book of World Records because I played this concert with Fiedler in '76 and uh-huh. had half a million people show up. And certainly on the tours, you feel like a celebrity. Was I? I was not personally famous, but I was associating, you know, with John Williams and people like that. You so, could have played at the Rolling Stones potentially. Uh, that would have been nice. <laughs> but, I don't know. Well, yeah. believe me, uh, I was. It's a very specialized thing uh-huh, playing classical music bass, and I couldn't really play rock and roll. Uh, and I wish I had, but uh, it's what the, well the story, which is in my other book, "Real Men Don't Rehearse." That's my pop's memoir. It's yeah, all about I want to talk about that as well. Yes, but oh, please tell do. the story. Go ahead. Well, I was playing what's called a kitty concert. Every orchestra in the world plays a kitty concert once a year. And I was playing, it was a little tiny group out in the suburbs, and they just did this horrible kitty concert. They had Mozart's corpse as part of the show. And it was just this dramatic moment where they, they had a couple of kids come out with a stretcher, you know, and a body on it. And I went up to the people doing the show. I said, you know, I'm not exactly an expert in taste, but I thought that was beyond the pale, you know, dead bodies at a kitty concert. I, I, I just don't think that's right. And... <laughs> I said, anybody could write a better kitty concert than that. I could write a better kitty concert than that. And they said, well, you're so smart. Let's see you do it. Yeah. So I started that. That's this is the thing about culture op- opportunities is yeah. that there are huge opportunities out there. Uh, we should talk about Bose Corporation. Though, and uh, is that most people don't see them, don't know they're there, mm-hmm. uh, don't act on them. And there's somebody somewhere who's got a budget. Mm-hmm. But they can't. But there's no there's no yellow pages for children's concert author. Right. You know where do you find that? Yeah. You know that. And they're they're looking around. How are we going to solve this problem? Uh-huh. And I just looked. These people had a problem. Then I said, Well, I'll I'll give it a go. I mean, what's it going to cost me to attempt it? Yeah. So I wrote a couple of shows for them, and they succeeded. They went they went well. And one of them, uh, Peter versus the Wolf. Yeah, which is a sequel to the famous Peter and the Wolf. Yeah. I mean, that's being done all over the world. I just had 18 performances in Germany last year, and now they're going to tour it in uh, Brazil this fall for a couple of years. And you know, I mean, I wrote it on a lark for this little kitty concert in a high school, but it just took off because there was a need for it. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's really my first writing, and then. Okay. I was hanging around at a health club for years telling stories about what it's really like to play in the Boston Pops. Because here in Boston, the Boston Pops is a very big deal. Yeah. And here I am, a guy who plays in it, so I'm very popular. And I said, I wonder if uh, I could you know, write, take these stories and write them down, put them in a book. And I, I did, and I self-published it. And the rest, as they say, is history. I've sold thousands of copies. I still sell it. And, that, and that's so, your book, Real Men Don't Rehearse. That's your first book. That was my first one, is Real Men Don't Rehearse. Uh, and it's just a collection of funny stories stories of disasters at concerts and musicians and fooling around and what really goes on. I mean, my main market for that uh, is mostly musicians who like to read about it, but it's definitely a general readership book. Uh, I, I recommend it. It's funny. It's it's good. Yeah, I, I've seen you. I've seen you. I found you on YouTube and um, as well with a couple of. Uh, uh, I think it's a nine minute video where you actually talk about or tell some stories about what happened. Uh, you're, you're you're actually uh, reciting some stories that are in the book. Real men don't rehearse. 
Um, right. And so I, I can, I encourage the audience to actually go out and find that as so I'll put some links, a link in the show notes as well. Um, but it, what is the, if, if you look, if you look about, if you talk about orchestras around the world, um, you must have traveled doing this, what you do as well. Is, oh, is there, yeah. is there, you talk about an internal culture within, within orchestras. Uh, in other words, if you're a real man, you don't really rehearse. You just get on stage and you do it, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Yeah. How is that different in, for instance, in Germany or in, I don't know, in Russia or in Brazil or I don't know what, what, what your experience is? Well, this is the big uh, outlying anomaly is that orchestras are the same everywhere. Okay. It's of, uh, you know, and understand that's in juxtaposition to everything else uh-huh. because it's it's a unique culture that started in, in Venice in 1400 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And every orchestra that came about after that, you know, in the United States, a couple things. We did not have a, a native born conductor of an American orchestra, a major orchestra uh-huh. until Leonard Bernstein. Uh-huh. Conducted New York Philharmonic in 1965, okay. and even then, there's really kind of a prejudice against you know the hometown boys. We would much rather have somebody right. with a Slavic-sounding name conducting our orchestra, yeah. and it's a huge leg up. I make jokes about it. you have to have a Z or a V in your name yeah. to conduct a major orchestra, yes. and it's scary how many of them have the Z or V in their name. Yeah. Uh, but the if you go to an orchestra in Australia or South Africa, the seating chart is the same. Yeah. Uh, the the it, it's another thing in America. They made everybody speak English. You know, when all the immigrants came in the twenties and teens, uh, we had lots of immigrants come through uh, Ellis Island. Yeah. But you had to learn English. Even the Native Americans had to speak English and nothing else. We they eradicated yeah. anything other than English, except in the Catholic Church, which kept Latin, uh-huh. and in orchestras, which kept all the Italian and French and German words. Okay. So when I have to sit down in an orchestra, even if it's in Australia or Portugal or, or Norway, yeah. the parts are written in Italian, mostly. Okay. And you have to be able to say Allegro non troppo and Andante Cantabile because that's that you have to speak Italian in order to speak the English and the uh, to play, play the piece. Yeah. And the, the protocols, there's a whole chapter in the book about protocols of seating and what the conductor does. And this is why you can take a conductor from Germany or Japan yeah. and plop them onto this podium at Symphony Hall. And and there is no cultural difference, really, at least in terms of playing. In the or- now, obviously, the people in the orchestra, uh, there was a very strong uh, Russian-Jewish culture mm-hmm. in the symphony when I started. That has more In Boston, you mean? More, in Boston, yeah. yes. That was an. Uh, it was more Italian in uh, the the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra, of course. I don't know that as well. And now it's kind of morphed into more of an Asian American population in in the orchestra. So, in terms of how that affects things, you know that that's just like any any place else, you know. But but in terms of the actual orchestra itself, I could go to an orchestra in Vancouver or mm-hmm. Japan or whatever, sit in the bass section, I would be fine. Yeah, I wouldn't know what the conductor was saying. But in terms of once the music starts, it's the same deal. It's okay. the same deal. What's the what is the 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 the, the best or your favorite story uh, out that out of that book, Prince? Uh, what is it? A man, a real man, don't rehearse. Real man, don't rehearse. Yeah. The favorite story? Your oh my favorite. gosh! That's like who's your favorite kid? Uh, yeah, my kids keep I, asking me that as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I I categorize them now. I say, okay, you're my you're my most favorite kid um, uh, under fourteen. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is only one, and then I, I stratify them, so that works. 
I, I mean, there's I mean, some of them are just fun because they're just they were just such in, incredible. Uh, uh, I would have just it, it's it's kind of hard to say the story from the book versus the experience mm-hmm. that I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment when Henry Mancini, who's the guy who wrote Moon River and Days of Wine and Roses and all that movie music, gave me a personal bow once mm-hmm. on a tour concert. Um, there was one night the the, the cannons went off in the wrong place and you have to read the story it's it's not funny to just say the cannons went off but the way the what happened after this uh my stand light caught on fire once when i was playing an opera (laughs) uh some of it you just uh the the uh i mean i'm trying to they kind of flood through my mind i mean the night i got the bass section drunk by mistake that's probably the one you saw on on Uh, that's the one i saw yeah it was like you thought it was beer but it turned out to be liquor yeah, it was malt liquor, and, yeah. all, all, and not all the guys were actually out consumers of alcohol, and they but they were peer pressure. We made them drink this thing, and we came out, and we we were just absolutely you know loopy, and we had to play this piece that was in the key of C flat, which is a hard to explain, except it's hard to do that when you're sober and <laughs> already you can't yeah. even read the music anymore, and and the conductor starts yelling at us, and well, you kind of had to be there, but it was really funny at the time. Yeah. Uh, the whole book is really about the whole angst of being a professional musician and just getting there and playing those notes, and, and when things go, I mean, then the way we went on, on tour with J- to Japan with John Williams, and uh, I, I, God, I, I mean, I would have to tell the whole story, otherwise yeah, it's, everything's out of context, but uh, that that's kind of the, the first book was was that. Now I, I understand this this book, this real men don't rehearse, is a it, to some extent is a natural sequel in terms of being being a bass player, you know, uh, being being a musician, etc. But then again, all of a sudden, your second book comes out, which I like the title. It really made me grin. Principles of applied stupidity. Okay, it, it, now it, we can. Yeah, it examines, mm-hmm. as you say, it examines the cultural dogmas of the American educational system. So, yes. what do you, what, tell us a little bit more about that. What is it? How do you get this title, which is already very attractive? And what are, well, what are kind of dogmas, uh, dogmas that you talk about? Well, we, you know, well, talking about culture, this is why I was so looking forward to this. Is that if you're in a culture, a lot of people never have a second cultural experience. Right. They grow up in a nice house. Their parents stay married. Uh, their father's a doctor. They go to medical school. They become a doctor. They've never really been outside of a fairly narrow range of experience, mm-hmm. even if they travel on a tour bus. Um, so you lose track of it. And I was always fascinated with the American school system and how it worked and because I really didn't like it very much. Mm-hmm. And what as really a kid started, or as an adult? Yeah, both. Okay. Both. Yeah. I absolutely hated school, even though I was a very good student. Uh-huh. You know, I got straight A's all the time. I was bored out of my mind. Uh-huh. Uh, so what really got the book going was two yeah. things. One was I was trying to, you know, jumpstart a speaking career, kind of uh-huh. like what you do. Yeah. And I was thinking, what do I have to offer, you know, as a bass player to uh, a corporate audience? And boy, it came up with nothing. <laughs> but, you know, can't fix it, feature it. We've got to be able to make something of this. Where it really started from was Arthur Fiedler. Uh-huh. I don't know if, if you've heard of this guy, but he was just huge. I mean, he was the most famous conductor. I'm playing for this guy, and I couldn't understand why he was so successful and famous. I mean, he sold, I don't know, half a billion dollars worth of records or something like that. I mean, in today's dollars, it was at least that. Yeah. And unattractive. Uh, not sexy, uh, can't sing, can't dance, can't compose, horrible, ugly voice, mm-hmm. uh, crotchety old geezer, uh, liked to go to fires. And this is the most famous, successful conductor in the world. He could do one uh, thing, right? 
well, what, burn down in buildings? <laughs> <laughs> Conduct an orchestra. Yeah. Well, actually, he, I mean, he would just kind of pound like this, like he was, you know, because now if you go to conducting school or have conducting competitions, it's yeah. it's all about this lilting, dancing, graceful, you know, and you have a name that with, a, with at least seven syllables in it with a V and a Z, and <laughs> uh, and there's this dogma, this concept of what a conductor is, and right. many people subscribe to this, they go along with it, and the number one question I get yeah. is, what does the conductor really do? Okay. And it, and it's a tough one because that's what does a manager really do? Yeah, you know true. that's the same same question which true, I'm true, sure true, you true. ponder a lot. And I'm looking at this guy. Why is he so much more successful than? Because I saw these other guys coming through as auditioning or they're trying them out. They they got the rich wife and the good tailor. That's the joke. What does it take to be a great conductor? Is the rich wife and a good tailor? <laughs> because they don't really have to do much except stand there and look pretty. And yeah. we can do everything else. Everybody yeah. thinks we're needing instruction. We don't. And uh, I mean, why is this guy? And I said, wouldn't it be funny to write a book about how he became famous because he was so incompetent? Right. And there's actually uh, the Dilbert principle. Are you familiar with yeah, Dilbert? Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, I've, I've, okay. I've watched them. I've seen them. Yeah. Okay, so you, you know the Dilbert principle. Um, uh, there's a, there's a book out there, uh, but unlike yes, there's a book. the audience and myself, I will let the Dilbert principle states that the stupidest people in a company mm-hmm. are promoted to management uh-huh. because that's where they can do the least amount of damage. <laughs> and, you know, it's fun. You know, he does a whole book on just making fun of, you know, incompetent yeah. people and corporations, which, you know, is kind of based on reality. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, I'm just going to write a book about how advantageous it is to just be incompetent and ignorant. And it was meant to be a joke. Right. It was only meant to be funny because obviously that's not how the world really works, uh-huh. right? Nope, that's yeah. the cultural dogma <laughs> kicking in here because uh-huh. I, I was still in the cultural dogma of school that it's good to be smart yeah. and it's very, very bad to be stupid. Yeah. But then I started writing the book and, and I transformed by the third chapter. I said, wait a minute. I've There's, got something here, yeah. I've got – yeah, I'm, I've, I've discovered something. It's right. kind of like the guy with penicillin. He says, that's funny, yeah. You know, that that's odd. Why is that doing that? That uh-huh. that shouldn't be. Yeah. And yet every time I put mold in here, it kills all the bacteria. Exactly. That doesn't make any sense. Why and not, we got antibiotics because that one guy and his yeah. his lunch actually fell in the trip. So I said, Well, let's go the other way. Let's actually embrace the whole idea that stupidity is better. Yeah. And what the big picture when I do a talk on this is we all in America anyway, we go to school and we're just immersed in this idea that smart is good and stupid is bad. Mm-hmm. But then I explain how or argue, I should say, or debate that there are times when being ignorant is really good. Yeah. It's really advantageous. I mean, one of the little bumper sticker things I say is the dumber you look, uh-huh. the more stuff people tell you. Sure. True. And the conductors who came up and said, I know how this piece should be played, watch me, follow yeah. my instructions. We just took such a total, you know, this is the thing about musicians is they're very sensitive. And if you insult them like that, uh-huh. well, your career's going nowhere because we're going to sabotage this concert tonight so you never get hired again. <laughs> and and I did this myself personally many times because uh-huh. you know you don't deserve to conduct me and as opposed to John Williams. Those are all the top guys. I actually went to the mountaintop. John Williams, uh, Ar- Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Fiedler, Henry Mancini. I'm just, I could list many more. Mm-hmm. They all came through, and here are the top guys. And they all did this. 
John Williams, I'm sure you've heard of him. Yeah. I worked with this guy for 10 years, and not once, not once did he ever tell me how to play anything. It was all Justin. Natural. I realize I'm. Well, it was it was a technique. He said, right. "You're the best bass player we could possibly get." I'm just so excited to hear what you're going to do tonight. Yeah. And when you pull that, I'm the more ignorant person here. Yeah. That forces the other person to come out more. It's like a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, the, and even the kitty concerts, if that other guy with the corpse of Mozart, if he hadn't done a horrible job, mm-hmm. I would have not had permission in myself. I mean, who am I to write a kitty concert? I've never taken a class in playwriting. I, I yeah, maybe, don't maybe, know how to. Maybe for that exact reason, you'd be the best person to do so, which you've done, and it was successful. It's because I didn't have a preset idea of how it should go. I just yeah. went from what does the audience want, what yeah. does this uh, conductor want. So we do tend to create these traumas and emotional programming in people mm-hmm. that you have to have all the correct answers. Mm-hmm. You must know the answer in advance. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just freewheeling here, but I had yeah, a talk with a guy who was an MBA. And I said, what's the one thing about Masters of Business Administration? Yeah. Uh, and he managed a company remotely in Peoria. Just, he lives down the street from me. I said, what's the one big thing about MBAs that nobody knows or understands or thinks about? Mm-hmm. He, says, he says, everybody thinks we're smart. Right. And I said, said, what do you mean by that? He says, everybody in my class at the MBA school was a C student. Right. We were all academically struggling people. It's true. And, it's- and, so you know this, I guess. Oh, well, absolutely. And, and, I mean, I, I've studied psychology. I'm an organizational psychologist, and my, ah, my, okay. so, my oh. sole my sole purpose was to actually get my master's in psychology. Um, and we we don't we don't do ABC grading. We do ten is best, and and one is is really bad. Um, mm-hmm. And my averages were around six, just right above above the you know the middle the, the middle line. Mm-hmm. Which is fine by me because that my objective was to get that diploma. And every time I say this, I, I tell someone or people ask me, well, so what do you do? I'm a psychologist. And people go like, oh, you can read my mind. <laughs> of course I can. That's, that's totally not true. I mean, that doesn't make one stupid per se. I mean, I'm, going to, I'm not going to say that I'm stupid. But I, I can very much relate to what you say uh, in terms of um, uh, your example uh, with, your, with the MBAs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Having having well, the, said this, in in that book, right in that book, principles of applied stupidity. Do you come to some sort of conclusion on how the American schooling system should be changed? Uh, you know, there are fifteen TED talks that already come up and say this is how we should do the schools. Uh-huh. And Finland is you know kicking our asses yeah. year to year, uh, and the, it's all there. All the information is there. Yes. Uh, how to do it. The templates are all there. And, and, but it's a strange thing. It's kind of like if we stand up and say, here's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And like everybody, there's a, it's actually dangerous because it creates a sense that, oh, it's being fixed. Right. Uh, no, no, it's not. Because the people who are uh, financially benefiting from the status quo mm-hmm. are usually the ones in power, and they're not going to change it. So... And that gets into my third book, which the the rich kid versus poor kid schools is that you know there's there's a whole reason why American schools operate the way that they do. Yeah. There's a phrase: it, things are perfectly designed to achieve the results they are cur- currently achieving, and the American school system is a perfect design for what it is currently doing. Mm-hmm. And whether or not we should change that or not, some people want to change it, but many people do not. 
no. because it's that's that's how they're making their money. It is, serves is, their purpose is that way. Yeah. It serves their purpose, and it creates an underclass. Yeah. And we don't want everybody to become a psychologist or, or an MBA because yeah, who's going to clean the toilets after five o'clock? Yeah. You have to have these stratas, strata, strata in society. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 the stupidity book is really about the whole concept of stupidity is man-made. Mm-hmm. This is a shaming influence that is embedded in you at a very early age that you are somehow inferior. Uh, you are flawed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are not perfect. And that creates a sense of, well, I don't deserve. I, I, I don't deserve this. And it maintains, a, it's a way of oppressing large numbers of people. Mm-hmm. This is, well, I don't, I don't deserve to be a doctor because I got a B or a C in, in biology in, yeah. in third grade. So you start to label yourself and internalize that. Yeah. And I'm uh, too stupid so, anyways. That's what, that's, a, that's what I, that's what I, what I come across. I'm, I'm not going to say a lot, but I hear a lot of, I say, I hear people say that, well, I couldn't do this because I couldn't do this. They put themselves down before they actually have tried something. Yes, yeah. exactly. And that comes from a, a psychological shock to mm-hmm. the, that they went through a shaming experience and they never want to go through that shaming experience again. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to attempt something they're not totally sure of because if they fail at it, that very embedded bad feeling yeah. in there, which is also about permission. I like to talk about per- permission as a coach. This mm-hmm. is really what I do for people. I never give people advice on how to proceed. I just give them permission to go past the taboo that they've right. got in their mind, that they're not allowed to do something. That's what's bothering them. Yeah. And so the whole concept. And the other side of that, though, is that to be smart is to conform and obey. Mm-hmm. That's really what taking a test is all about. Do you agree 100% with my answers to these questions? Yes, I do. Yeah. And I got a big pat on the head. Well, now what have I become? You know, yeah. just what they created. Yeah, so it's it's it was fascinating for me to study the concept of uh, mistakes and uh, failure. You know, the whole concept of failure is man-made. Uh, there's no such thing as a failure. It's 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 a if you have a non-success event. This is this is how I put it when I give my talks. I yeah. said if you drove here today and maybe you tried to park between the two white lines in the parking lot, mm-hmm. and you and you missed it. You're too close to one car on one side. Uh huh. Well, what do you, well, you back up and you pull back in again and get it right, you know, okay? Right. And, and you don't go through a lot of angst over failing. Yeah, yeah of course. But you, but you did fail. You know, you did, you did fail. To At do first it. you but, did, yes. Yes, it, but it wasn't a failure. There's a difference between a non-success event where you just didn't try to do something and didn't succeed. And, uh-huh. Okay, let's try it again. As opposed to having a non-success event and then – You're in a vulnerable state now because you did something not perfectly. And now if someone else wants to dump on you yeah. and, and, and take some of their personal shame issues and dump them on, that's the moment they choose. Mm-hmm. When you're a little off balance and a little exposed and your your perfection, your social perfection is not it's, there it's because, off, you, yeah. because you had a non-success event. Uh-huh. So that's really how failure gets uh, over and over you know, beaten into people. Repeated, repeated. Is this, is, is, is this part of your book, getting in touch with the inner, with the inner rich kid as well? Uh, is that, does that cover a different topic? Because there you have to also talk about cultural differences between poor kids and rich kids. You touched upon it. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more what these cultural differences are then? I mean, within okay. the United States, between rich and, and poor kids. 
Well, I mean, it's very much of experiential, you know, uh-huh. what my perspective on it. But when I went from the poor kids school where they regularly, you know, every day somebody would get hauled out into an echoey hallway and paddled on their rump with a wooden paddle. This was a common experience. <laughs> and they didn't do this in a nice little room, quiet room someplace. They did it in the hallway where we could all hear the wax and the screams. Cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Amazing, yeah. <laughs> We had what the shop teacher would actually take you to the shop, make a paddle in, with oh, the really? jigsaw in front yeah, of your eyes. This guy was right. Yeah, I had to watch him make it. Uh, the guy was sadistic. Torture. Right. Uh, also interesting is, I mean, this was normal to me that if you wanted to go to the hospital, uh, the hospital, the I guess you would need it, the yeah. bathroom or the library, yeah. you had to ask permission. Yeah. And you had to get a pass, an actual piece of paper. Right. And there were kids out in the hallways that would stop you. Your papers, please. You know, it was that kind of Gestapo thing. Oh, my God. So, but that was normal to me that, that we had to be. And, and if you didn't have a class, you were in study hall. You yeah. had to go to a room and, they, and you couldn't talk. You couldn't communicate with right. other kids. And this is like the number one skill we're trying to teach people is, you know, communication. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> True. We absolutely yeah. cannot communicate with anyone else. Like, just do what Austin Power. I go to the rich kid school and I have my third period is uh, empty. So I'm looking for the study hall, yeah. you know, because I, I don't have a class. Yeah. I must go to study hall. And I'm asking people, where is the study hall? Yes. And blank faces they did not understand the concept they didn't know what a study hall was and i said well do i need a pass to go to the bathroom and they're going justin it doesn't matter what your grades are if you need to go go yeah they really didn't understand these concepts and i've sort of looked, well, what does this mean what how is this different because i'm in cl-. It, it was really a question of trust hmm. in a poor kid's school there's no trust mm-hmm. you can't trust anybody else they don't trust you. And the rich kid school, we didn't even have library cards. If we wanted a book in the library, you, you just went in and grabbed it. Right. And they trusted you to bring it back. Right. If you didn't have class, you could just go take a walk on the beautiful grounds. Or whatever uh, you wanted to do, really. What yeah. do I want to do? And you start thinking about how, and then it's very much about money, is based on trust. This is really what True. it's all about. Yeah, yeah very much. And uh, then there's three things about being a poor kid. It's a lack of, well, it's universal negativity. I should have, uh, it's a belief that there's, there's finite amounts of everything. And in the rich kid school, there's infinite amounts of everything, however much you want. Right. Uh, the yeah. poor kid school, you had to bring your lunch or buy it, and they gave you a tray, and that's all you get. In the rich kid school, it, it was a buffet, you know, right. help yourself yeah. as much as you want. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I do it, you know, I parse it out, you know, chapter by chapter, but a big part of it was permission. This is kind of where I discovered this. I was thinking, you know, in the poor kids' school, I had no permission. I had no permission. In the rich kids' school, these kids could do whatever they want. They, they, permission was embedded. It wasn't even a topic of discussion yeah. of am I allowed to do this. It was just, you can. You, you have can, this. And, and we trust you that, that you can and you'll do good. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that... And that is really, when you have that emotional infrastructure in place, mm-hmm. oh, what an advantage. What an advantage over coming out of the poor kid school. You're constantly told that you, that there's, well, first of all, if you take something, if you want more, that means your sister, little brother is going to get less. Yes. Because there's only three pork chops. Yeah. And, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, there's a finite number amount of stuff, and so if, if you become greedy, and being wealthy is a bad thing in poor kid culture. I mean, 
James Bond villains are always wealthy industrialists who employ thousands <laughs> of people globally. <laughs> That's true. That's so true. Absolutely. Yes. James Bond is a civil servant who just, you know, drinks and womanizes, and he's the hero. And he's, yeah, yeah, true, 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 true. <laughs> Justin, he's living you, off the tech you, 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 you morphed from from uh, being a bass player to um, a, a, an author, public speaker, which I think your last books are they're getting in touch with your inner rich kid, uh, and the principles of applied stupidity have are. I have nothing or very little to do with your origin, uh, original talent in terms of, of being a musician. What else do you have up your sleeve? Or what else well, do you still want to do? Uh, boy, that's a good question. I, I do a lot of swing dancing. Well, this is my fourth book, if you really want to get into it. Okay. Uh, or this is called Time Light Love. Uh-huh. And this comes from, again... Uh, see, I come from this, again, this, this musical training, which most people do not get, and yes. certainly not major orchestra training, which most, very, very few people have the opportunity to live in that culture. Uh-huh. And I, I'm not trying to disparage people who do this work, but it always amazes me when we talk about emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. that musicians are never invited to the party when you have these discussions and there's people who talk about it and you know this is all we do this is all we do all day long is how do we get you to feel like you're happy or sad or you know uh, if you took uh, star wars and turned off the sound and just watched it with uh, captions yeah it would do nothing to you no you would it's very boring. Ten minutes. Yeah. Very boring. Yeah. John Williams, I watched this guy manipulate emotions of tens of thousands of people uh, at will, without guessing. It was, I'm going to take you here, I'm going to take you there. And I boiled this down. I, you know, I think I should have been a statistician. I think that's really what I should have done. <laughs> I, I love just looking at statistics and big data and said, how, how is he doing that? How is John Williams manipulating millions of people across the globe uh, with – Nothing but these sonic frequencies. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. So, and then there's another, this was philosophical speculation, but I just wanted to say, is there, is, was there like a periodic table of emotions? I mean, we have the ge- human genome. Yeah. They've, they've broken that down. Sure. So why are emotions such a vague, amorphous concept of fear and happy and Oh, no, wait a minute. You know, you got blue eyes because gene number 597 is ACTG. Why can't yeah. I do yeah. – yeah. why is it that, that emotions are, are so mysterious, especially when we – at bar 47, we're going to make you feel sad yeah. in this piece, like that. It, it really is – It was. where's the science in this? So what I came up with is that there's only, you know, three elements in an atom. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the protons, neutrons, electrons. There's yeah. only three things – uh, um, ohms and amps and watts, that gives you complete control over electricity. Uh-huh. It boils down to these three things. Right. So is it possible oh, – and, and colors. There's millions of colors. Yes. But there's only three primary colors yes. from which they are all derived. So Red, that's kind of – Yes. Yeah so, that, yeah, so that's the basis. Could we do something like that with emotions? Uh-huh. Are there three – primary emotions uh-huh. from which all of your feelings are derived that's okay. my and the book is a philosophical speculation saying that there are three just like three primary colors trust mm-hmm. is a primary emotion because from that you get confidence you get faith that's all that's because every culture has a religion of some kind mm-hmm. because we have a need to trust 
And then there's chi, which is just your, your emotional needs to, to procreate and to survive mm-hmm. and very powerful. And the third one is the need to connect. This is universal. Every human being has yeah. this need. And so if you start to take, all right, so I've got need to connect, chi, and trust. What happens if trust gets, gets uh, violated? Or It's kind of like if you take a blue light out of white light, mm-hmm. what do you get? Well, in that case, you get orange because you're combining, I think, what is it, yellow and red. Okay. So if we start to take a person and if you remove their, their sense of connection, they're now lonely. Mm-hmm. Well, how many songs are written about that emotional state? And it's just one single factor of emotions removed. So I just kind of look at that. Could you? I mean, it's it's you know, it gets into a lot of physics. Has it has it been published the, yet, or are you in the making in the writing of? It is it is on Kindle. It's already I, I just, available. I, yes, it is on Kindle. Okay. And uh, I, I haven't. I've just been so busy with other stuff to take a book like that and get it into hardcover mode. Uh, it, it takes a certain amount of work. Which I said, you know, this. I'm not going to be speaking on it, and I, I wanted to put it out there just in case people were curious. Uh-huh. But I, I knew that it was going to be too hip for the room and just too bizarre. And I, I really don't like to talk about it as a speaker because it's too tough. Uh-huh. It's not something I can make fun. Yeah, yeah, you know, I can it's, understand. It's, it's, it's geeky. It's yeah. really geeky stuff. And I don't know. It, and it's just a guess on my part. But it fell together. The whole, I never got to a point where – Oh, this is a stupid idea, or oh, oh, yeah. this this doesn't work because X, Y, Z. It kept fitting together, so I took it all the way to the end cool. of that book. So, I, time like love, time light, light uh, as in sunlight. Uh, time, light, light and love. love. Okay. The right. the idea being that if your three emotional energies are all in balance, that's uh-huh. the white light of happiness. And so. It, okay, that, that's yeah. kind of and there's there's a I, I, you know it it's You've got it's me bizarre. thinking at least you got me thinking yeah it's yeah. something that you know it, it challenges all the ways we think about emotions and yeah. it's a completely different but it took all my musical training that just led me I said wait a minute this relates to triads and the the musical uh, association of of uh, of uh, feeling of the audience and how do we do that with a limited number of notes yeah. very few. Yeah. So all music is based on a triad, which is only three notes. Okay. So I just that's where that sort of came from. Anyway, you know. That, all right. That can well, get with with that, I, I'm going to use that segue uh, since we've come full circle back to music again to um, uh, see if we can uh, go towards the end. I'm looking at the at the recording time, which is about 40 minutes. Um, usually it's about it's about 30 minutes, but if if I enjoy myself, I always make it longer. Oh, so. Well, I'm, I'm, I try. <laughs> no, it's cool. I, I really, I really enjoyed, I really uh, enjoyed talking to you, Justin. There are two more questions that are left uh, on on my question list, and the standard question, the one but last question is: Can you, from your experience in in your different traits and different hats that you're wearing, can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent? More culturally competent. Yes. Uh, I think the one big tip, and ask me again after I do this. Okay is that we are constantly taught to think about ourselves. We, uh, narcissism is taught, is constantly in, encouraged. Okay. And where most people fail as conductors, uh, as dance partners, is in developing your perception. You know, you may not know anything about people from China, but if you understand that you don't know, Yes, and accept that you don't know instead of trying to you know read a book real quick and say and show off what you know. 
just ask that person. You know, ask for help. Ask for coaching. Uh, be be open to, to the idea that you that you don't don't know. And because uh, this is what the great conductors did, they did not instruct. They did not perform. They perceived. They stood on the podium and stared at you. And it was it was effortless for them. Right. And they got. But it, it, it makes so much sense, and yet less than 3% of all the conductors I played for knew how to do this. Right. Okay. Uh, the, 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 that's, a, that's a big one. Uh, it, for me, it makes perfect sense. Um, develop your, uh, your perception uh, and understand, understand that you don't understand. Yes, um, yes. And, and it, when in doubt, a, go ahead and ask. Yeah. Go ahead and ask and just be in terms of p- the power of perception. You know, uh, this makes you popular. Yeah. You just I mean this is Dale Carnegie 101. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, I have, yeah. uh you know th- this is if you read this is like the first book on how to win friends and influence people. Yeah. It was all about perception. Yes. It's like look at these people and see them. What what is it about them that they're proud of or nervous about? And rather than thinking about yourself mm-hmm. and protecting yourself, just open to that. Uh, because that, if I travel to Brazil or Japan or whatever, just like, well, what is this? What's the rules here? Because people love to help you out. Oh, yeah, they, they do. do. Yeah, they, they do. really that's, love to that's do that. my experience as well. Last question, Justin, if I may. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Or if they want to find more, find out more about you, how can they do so? Uh, probably the best way is just go to my website, justinlock.com. Uh, that's lock with it, J-U-S-T-I-N-L-O-C-K-E dot com. Or just search for Justin Locke on Google. I own the first three pages of Google results of yes. my name. All right. And, uh, you know, there's links there. Right now I'm in this process of marketing my kids' shows. So the website is kind of uh, built towards, you know, about 300 orchestras popping in to, to look at it right now. Okay. But I plan to put it back. And uh, you can go to the contact page and there's the video page. You can see links to the videos and, okay, cool. you know, Google Google will take you there. I'm, yes. I am not hard to find. <laughs> All right. That's nice. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Justin, for taking your time in your, um, in your well, no, it wasn't afternoon. It's uh, because you guys are in daylight saving time already. So Yeah, it, well, whatever. You know, the sun's out. The sun's out. Yeah, <laughs> here it's about to set already. So um, uh-huh, we're towards 6 p.m. at this moment. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Um, and I'm pretty sure we'll talk to each other in the future. Uh, I'm, I hope so. You know, so we'll talk, uh, talk speaking shop soon. All right. Take so care. I, I envy your success. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. If you want to see the video cast, then it's actually worth watching the video cast because there's a lot of movement with hands going on. Go to, in this podcast, uh, that is in this video cast, go to culturematters.com slash YouTube and there you can find the video as well. Subscribe to this podcast because then you'll get it for free in your inbox every other week. And while you're at it, why don't you leave a review in iTunes as well? Five stars, of course, would be excellent. All right. Do remember that culture does matter. This episode was produced by Janice Sheila. Uh, The music is by Ben Sound. My name is Chris Smith. This was the Culture Matters Podcast, and I'll be back in two weeks' time. By the way, last week, episode number 97, we had Henk van Rensbergen talking about abandoned places and no man's land. So make sure you check that out. Check that episode out as well. You take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. 